book of 1 Timothy is a pastoral epistle written by Paul the Apostle. It's one of his final letters to his protege and spiritual son, a young pastor named Timothy. And although the letter is intended for his ministry life, the content transcends and applies to the Church of Jesus Christ. Within this letter is the most explicit and complete instructions for church leadership and administration. Not only is the Christian's character of utmost importance, but also the church's culture is of spiritual significance. From the qualifications of elders and deacons to the quality of the times and seasons, this letter teaches the believer to guard the truth of the gospel against spiritual treason. And that is why 1 Timothy is a perfect template to follow for life and ministry. Because when we submit to the inspiration and course correction of this letter, the church will be pure, her people bolder, and the gospel clearer. The book of 1 Timothy. Dear church, this is your charge. All right, so I will tell you up front, I'm going to be setting a lot of groundwork, and I'll tell you how this works as I'm preparing a sermon. If I know where I'm at or where I'm going, I will start off with the text or the account that I intend to cover. So I put down those verses, and they were the first 11 verses in 1 Timothy, verses 1 to 11. And as I made my way through, I realized, all right, that's too much content. I began building out each section. So I backed up a few verses, and I was at verse 1 to verse 7, build it out some more, had to back up a little bit more and stopped at verse 2. Okay, so I was at verse 1 and verse 2, which is the introduction, which I will read. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I began to build that out. There were two primary actors, Paul and Timothy. And the more that I built out each actor or their character in the grand scheme of the scriptures, I found that more content was being added to just Paul himself. So we went from verses one and two just to verse one. That's it. For the next 40 minutes, we're going to be looking at just verse one, and I want to tell you up front, the writer is Paul the Apostle. He writes this letter at the end of his life. Unknowingly, of course, doesn't know the date of his death, but there's something within this letter, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, a second letter written to Timothy, which would be his final letter and the letter written to Titus. Those are the three final letters written by Paul. They are called, based on the content, pastoral epistles. They are written to Timothy as a pastor and Titus as a pastor in Crete. Timothy is left in Ephesus. Ephesus is in present-day Turkey. So there's your time, 62 to 63 AD. Paul's in Macedonia, which is Greece, and he's writing a letter to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, which is Turkey. This whole epistle, six chapters, is a defense of the gospel. What does that mean? It means how you and I are called to underline the gospel in our lives. And if we underline the gospel, we will expose those who undermine the gospel. If your life and your church, which you contribute to, underlines the gospel, emphasizes the gospel, accentuates the gospel, highlights the gospel. Just by that standard alone, in your life, in the people of God, those in the midst who are not living to highlight the gospel, to underline the gospel, they will be exposed as those that undermine the gospel. And that's what Paul is writing to Timothy about. He wants him to underline the gospel in such a way that it exposes those who are undermining the gospel from chapters one all the way to chapter six. You will discover, and it will probably be reiterated week after week as we take our time, two central themes, 
two themes that I would say are running like two strong parallel rivers that make up the body of doctrine and duty for the church and the Christian. The first theme, if you're taking notes, is that truth would be preserved in the church. Underline that in your mind. Truth needs to be preserved and protected in the church. In chapter 3, Paul would say, if I don't make it, Timothy, if my presence physically is delayed, here's what I'm writing you to convey. How you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, not speaking of a building, and he qualifies it. The family of the living God, brothers and sisters in Christ, spiritual mothers and fathers in Christ, sons and daughters in Christ. Then he defines the church, which I love this verse. He says, the church, the pillar, stable, and ground or foundation of truth. It's safe to say there is no other organization or organism in all of the world who is charged by God to uphold and preserve truth. You want to know why you're seeing truth fall by the wayside? You want to know why you're seeing truth die? It's because churches across this land have neglected to preserve what has been deposited to the people, the gospel. And that's out of the word of God. That's truth. The second theme, if the church is to preserve truth, the second theme is that truth would persevere in the Christian. Those two go together. What do you mean truth needs to persevere in the Christian? Apply it to yourself. If the word of God perseveres in your life, it means that it endures in you. It matures in you. To have the word of God persevere in me, it means nothing outside of me is going to get in the way of the word of God moving in me. It needs to endure within me. It needs to mature within me. Now, let me put it together. Here's your two themes. If truth perseveres in the Christian, then truth will be preserved in the church, period. That's it. There it is. What are we after in this study? If truth perseveres in you and perseveres in me and we come together as the church, then we are going to protect that truth and protect what the work of the Lord is doing in the midst of us. This is what Paul is writing his letter to Timothy to remind him about. Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. All right, first and foremost, you have to recognize, not just in this letter, in all of Paul's letters, there are 13 in whole in the book of, or excuse me, in the entire New Testament, 13 letters were written by Paul himself. He begins every one of those letters with a salutation identifying himself as the sender. And the reason why they did that in ancient times is because they wrote on scrolls and they would be rolled up. So if you didn't write your name in the beginning, the recipient would have to unroll the scroll to find out at the bottom, the way we write letters, who wrote this letter. So they would start off, unlike how we start off. We say to the person, and then we usually sign it at the end. They start off with who's writing it, and then the sender to the recipient. And that's what you see here. It's Paul's letter. He identifies himself as an apostle, he identifies himself as an apostle with heaven's authority, an apostle in the original language designated one who was sent, one who was sent forth with authority, like an ambassador, one who was commissioned with a message to go. Paul is saying, I am an apostle. He identifies an apostle of who? Who's the sender? Jesus Christ. What's your authority at being sent? the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul does in every one of his letters. Don't get lost in the details. I'll do that for you. In 1 Corinthians 
in the beginning of that letter, he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Very similar introduction. Similarly, the second letter to the Corinthians, he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and, get this, Timothy, our brother. Now, Timothy finds his name in six of Paul's letters. Did you ever know that? In other words, Timothy, who we're going to learn about, is a co-sender of six of the 13 letters that Paul authored. How important is Timothy's role all of a sudden? Before I know anything about him, the fact that his name is included in the introduction of these letters. To the Galatians, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle, not from man, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. To the Ephesians, he writes, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. To the Colossians, he writes, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Timothy, our brother. To second, the second letter to Timothy, same introduction. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. To the Romans, he writes, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. To the Philippians, he writes, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. To Titus, he writes, Paul, bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. To Philemon, he writes, a Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy. To the Thessalonians in the first letter and the second letter, he only writes Paul, Silvanus, Silas, and Timothy. That's his introductions in all 13 letters. Now, we could spend all day talking just about that. And that's what we're going to do. <laughs> and here's why. I couldn't get past the introduction because I recognize Paul is making a very clear statement to the churches and the people who would receive this letter both then and now. And he's basically saying this, I'm Paul and I didn't choose this. And I didn't choose God. God chose me. And the moment that I've recognized that God chose me, you ready? I now choose God. See, that's what it means when he writes, I'm an apostle by Jesus Christ through the will of God or the commandment of God. I didn't choose this, he chose me. But the moment I recognize he has chosen me, I'm a bondservant to it. That is the lowest form of a servant. I am choosing to be a servant or a slave to the cause of my master. That's what this guy is saying. In fact, to the Galatians, he would write it like this. Galatians 1, 15 and 16. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now watch what happens here. Paul is telling us that when it pleased God, the author of life who separated him from his mother's womb, called him through his grace. Here's your first calling. The calling to salvation is the Christian's first calling. You see that in this verse. Who called Paul through his grace to salvation? God. We start there because without understanding that you have been called to salvation, some of us in this room might think that we actually brought ourselves to salvation. But salvation is being given life when you were dead, dead in your sin, dead in your trespasses. And it was God who intercepted the trajectory that you were on, unaware, on your way to hell, separated from God for all eternity, that's serious, and God himself intervened. You are called to salvation. Do you know that? I mean, that alone right there should humble us in this room. We have been called. It's not a work of the flesh. It's not a work of the will of man. It's nothing that I could bring to the table myself. I was dead in my sin, and then Jesus called me unto himself. And did you know that Jesus himself said in John 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father has drawn him. 
The second calling that Paul tells us, God who had pleased him to reveal his son in Paul, that's the calling to sanctification. That's your second calling. Everybody in this room, if you've been called to salvation, you're also called to sanctification. That's Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, where the Lord is revealing his Son in you. You're becoming more like Jesus day by day, month by month, year by year. You're becoming more sanctified. You are called to that. And the third calling, get this, what does Paul do in response? That I might preach him among the Gentiles. Called to salvation, called to sanctification, called to service. Your third calling is a calling to service. Calling always equals compulsion. To be called is to be compelled. I can do nothing but. I've said from this platform and others that yes, I do this for a living, but don't get it twisted. If I only do this for a living, the moment something touches my living, what's going to keep me doing it? No, you got to understand, I don't just do this for a living. I live to do this. Like, there's a huge difference between the two. To live to do this, I'm compelled to speak God's word, to teach God's word, to share God's My calling is compelling me every week to make sure that I'm hearing his voice so that this church can hear his voice through me. That's my calling. No choice. I'm asking this assembly to ask the Lord, what has he called you to do to serve his body? And here's how you'll know the difference. You ready? A calling is not something we aspire to. A calling is something we are inspired to. And I wanted to use those two words loosely, but you understand what I'm saying. You can't aspire to a calling. If you aspire to a calling, it becomes a work of the flesh. You can be inspired to a calling. One has the meaning of God's breath. The other is more about maybe ambition. Now, I'm using it in that way because if it's an aspiration, then it's likely built on selfish ambition. If it's an inspiration, it's likely built on spiritual compulsion. And here's what happens. People enter the ministry, the ministry, not just, not, look at me, not just staff, the ministry, serving the church. People enter the ministry for wrong reasons. And if you enter ministry to serve the church for wrong reasons, there's two results. You either leave or quit or you stay and you seek clout. You either quit or you seek clout. And here's how that happens. It's possible to enter the ministry, but never allow ministry to enter them. And that's what I've seen. It's easy to just quit because it was never a calling in the first place. And, and, and please know this, being educated in the Bible is not a calling. Just because you know the Bible intellectually does not mean you're called. Just because you may have been trained formally or went to a seminary or a Bible college, we've erred greatly in the American church dynamic where we think as long as we send people off to a seminary and let them learn a lot of Bible and a lot of theology, when they get out, they're called and they jack up the work of Christ in his church. Why? Because there's no Holy Spirit. There's no empowerment from the inside out. And what I'm asking this body is to say, Lord, thank you for calling me to salvation. Thank you for calling me to sanctification. Make me more like Jesus. And Lord, thank you for calling me to service. And then have the discernment to know where God is leading you to serve his body because we need the members of the body. We are in this together. What you cannot do is de designate yourself anything in the body. This is what Paul's saying with his introduction. He's like, I didn't designate myself an apostle. Paul would write to the Ephesians, which, by the way, is the body or community where Timothy receives this letter eventually. Paul's first touch point with the Ephesians comes through the letter entitled Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. And here's Jesus, ready? And he himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor 
teachers. In the original Greek, pastor, teacher was one office. It was saying the shepherd's responsible for teaching the sheep, feed the sheep, protect the sheep. But there are these other offices. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I think it's rather important as we're laying a foundation. What is an apostle? An apostle is one who was sent by Jesus himself. You got to understand something. There was the office of apostle and the office of prophet in the New Testament. And those two offices have ceased. But the practice or service of those offices continues. In other words, there's only 12 apostles. Revelation 21 tells us that. In New Jerusalem, the gates are going to have 12 names on them, the names of the tribes. The foundations of those gates are going to have 12 names on them, the, the names of the apostles. There's only 12 apostles. I'm under the biblical persuasion that after Judas left the, the 12, there's 11, they chose Matthias. I think God chose Paul, and he became the 12th apostle because he calls himself an apostle. Apostles were chosen personally by Jesus himself. Apostles saw the resurrected Christ after he got up from that grave. Apostles were commissioned and given the authority of Christ where signs and wonders followed the apostles. There's a couple prophets mentioned in the New Testament. The prophet's role in that office was to point to Jesus. That's it. To foretell what the scripture said about Jesus, there he is, and to foretell what the scripture said about Jesus. Now, why is that important? Because they didn't have the canon of scripture. So it was important for the apostles, like Paul, who were sent under the authority of Christ and the prophets who were speaking to lay, ready, the foundation of the church. Where do I pull that? Ephesians 2.20. The church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, those two offices, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. He's the binding stone. He is the capstone. The, here, here we go. The apostles were appointed by Jesus himself. The prophets pointed to Jesus himself. Prophets pointed to Jesus Apostles were appointed by Jesus. Now, what happens is the practice or service of an apostle, I guess let me say it like this. If anyone is self-designated themselves an apostle or a prophet in present day society, they are likely a false apostle and a false prophet. And I'm saying that under the authority of the word of God. You cannot designate yourself an apostle. However, there are those like my brother Adam my brother Rick to my left, my brother Scott and his family, this must be the missionary section, who feel compelled to go and they're sent. So they're going under the practice of an apostle. We call them missionaries. And Rick goes around the world and he feels sent to do that. And Scott and Michelle, they go where God sends them, South Africa and India. They are practicing like an apostle. Does that make sense? But they won't call themselves an apostle. And there are those who practice or have the service of a prophet. Many people in this body have said, you almost prophetically have that gift. I don't know what that means other than I'm just foretelling the word of God and foretelling the word of God. Then there's evangelists. What do evangelists do? Evangelists, the word means they are messengers of the good news. They take the word of God and they share it. And then there's pastor, teachers, all of these offices were designated by Christ himself for the edification of the church and the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. All right, all that to say this. Paul says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. That is under the commandment of God himself. But why are we talking about Paul and his letter to Timothy? Many of us know his name before he was known as Paul was Saul. And I'm okay with us making the application out of his name change, right? But Jesus didn't change his name. Jesus changed Simon's name. Your name's Simon, I'm gonna call you Peter. But we know him as Paul from Saul because, you ready? Saul was Hebrew, Paul was Greek. That's it. The New Testament was written in Greek. And that's why you see his name change from Saul to Paul. But because the contrast between the two 
is so powerful, it's okay to say, all right, he was Saul, and the Lord changed his nature, and we know him as Paul. The first mention of this guy named Saul was Acts 7. At the end of Acts 7, you get the first martyr, the first murder. Martyr means witness, witness for Jesus. A man, a deacon named Stephen. Stephen preached the true gospel, and those that were present were agitated. And it says in verse 57 and 58, then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him in one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, Stephen. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was in his late 20s. I want you to picture the scene. They just got done throwing stones like softballs, maybe larger, at Stephen, which kills him. And as a result, they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, showing him honor for his position at the time. Well, what was his position at the time? He gives us clues about his upbringing in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. He talks about his resume. He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, speaking about who he was, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, you want to put your resume on the table and compare it to mine? Paul says, I more so. I was circumcised the eighth day by tradition. I'm of the stock of Israel, the tribe of God's people, Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin produced the first king, King Saul, probably why they named him Saul. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. Hebrews were known for their following of God's law. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Saul was a Pharisee. He knew the law inside and out. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He persecuted the church with such rage as we'll see. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Saul's like, I've kept the law to a T. You want to talk about good works? You want to talk about pedigree is what he's saying? Family heritage? Is that what you want to talk about? Oh, you want to talk about degrees? I got my master's degree in theology. Is that what you want to talk about? He goes on to say this. What things were gained to me? These I have counted loss for Christ. In fact, I've counted all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, whom I've suffered all loss and count as, you ready? Finish it. You know this verse. Count as what? Dung. Dung. Rubbish, holy crap. It's basically what he's saying. So at some point when God called him and humbled him, he goes from this religious zealot who kept the law of Moses, was a chief advocate of Judaism, where he's confronting and killing Christians in the early church movement. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 8 says, Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. And then in verse 3, it says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women to prison. The word havoc speaks of a wild boar who's wounded on a rampage. Saul was on a wild rampage, persecuting men, women, and children, dragging families from their homes. I want you to picture with color commentary, this guy and he thought he was serving the Lord. And he is causing pain. And then Acts 9, Acts 7, Acts 8, Acts 9. Acts 9 is where we see recorded his radical conversion and his calling. In fact, Acts 9 begins with, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for an arrest warrant so that he could go to Damascus. And I want you to know this, Saul was on his way to Damascus 
breathing murderous threats to persecute Christians. He was not on his way to a retreat. He wasn't on his way to church. He was on a mission to stomp out the way. He was not looking for the Lord. And that is when the Lord called him. You know how this story goes? He's blinded by a light. He falls off his horse. He hears a voice from heaven calling his name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard to kick against the goads. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And this moment in human history, as the Lord saw fit in his will to call this guy, radically transform him. I say rewire him. All those things that he learned, God didn't throw it away. God's like, I'm going to use all that. This guy was impressive. He was educated. He knew the word. He tells his testimony two other times. Acts tells it three times. How many times have you told your testimony? The word of God in the book of Acts tells Paul's testimony, Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. I've had people say, you shouldn't tell your testimony in the church. I've had people say that to me. Really? I'm just telling you the truth of my testimony, which points to the truth of God's testimony. How he's able to, are you ready? Take someone who was persecuting the church, take him, and he would become one of the most persecuted of the church. See, only Christ can transform someone from being a vicious persecutor of the church to a victorious preacher in the church. Only Christ can take someone who was a persecutor of Christians to actually, eventually, being persecuted as a Christian. Do you have any idea how radical this conversion is? All of us have radical conversions, if we're honest. Our hearts were dead, and Jesus brought them back to life. But sometimes the exterior or the external are a little bit more hardened or a little bit more uh, unrighteous that when God gets a hold of our lives, there's a juxtaposition of that's who I used to be and this is who I am today. Have you ever seen a radical transformation like that? I have. I remember in prison with another inmate. His name was Little John and I talk about him often. And I remember watching this guy as he conducted himself in the institution and both guards and inmates alike feared Little John. I remember hearing the guard saying, don't mess with him. They would tell the younger corrections officers, don't push that guy's buttons. The inmates, gang members, old and young, were told, don't cross paths with that guy. And what struck me was when the warden himself came up to me and said, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing with Little John, as if Little John had registered for my soccer camp, and I was showing him how to do some moves or something. <laughs> the work that I'm doing with Little John, I wasn't doing any work with Little John. The word of the Lord was doing a work in Little John. So as I'm writing this sermon, I decided to go check out a testimonial that Soldiers for Faith did on behalf of Little John. And I sat there and I watched it, and I was like, oh my goodness, everybody needs to see this. So instead of explaining it, I wanted to just show it. It's seven minutes but it's worth every second. Watch the work of the Lord in little John's life. My name is John Palladino, and I am better known as Little John. I grew up here in North Jersey, mostly around Garfield, Lodi area. My father owned a pizzeria, and it was called Big John's Pizza. But everybody would come in and say, hey, Big John. And then they say, hey, Little John. You know, obviously I grew a lot bigger than Little John, so it just stuck with me as a nickname. Um, growing up, my family, we were Catholics. So we were mostly holiday Catholics. And uh, after that, my religious experience was based around a girl that I had a crush on. So I would go to this church and this youth things because I liked this girl. But I never had in my head a thought to say, you know, I want to be that. I mean, I didn't like, you know, push anybody down who did it. 
It was more like, it's not for me. And I just felt more like I wanted to do what I wanted to do and I wanted to, you know, be bad. I was involved with organized crime and was basically like a bodyguard for a boss in North Jersey. But I also was very successful at collecting money. So I was sort of a coveted person in terms of in the inner workings of the family. Because what do you do if you lend someone 100000 and they tell you, yeah, I'm not giving it to you? You know, one of my favorite tactics was to show up at somebody's house early in the morning when they were getting ready to go to work. And I'd be standing there with a cup of coffee like, yo, what's up? You got the money? No. But all right. And I would have a cup full of gas. And I would throw it in their face. And I'd be like, tomorrow I'm coming back with the matches. So my life has been sort of geared around that mentality. You address things with violence and you get what you want by being the strongest and the, the most vicious person you could be. What would you prefer, to be the lion or the lamb? In those years, I preferred the lion. You know, I had been four times in prison. And every time that I've been incarcerated, I've always gone into that with the mindset of how to be a better criminal. But when I was out and I did, you know, learn different things, I applied them, which was basically what led to my next incarceration. So when I made it to Mid-State, I was doing um, a seven-year flat get there, go to my bed, set up my area, make my bed, put whatever little belongings I have into my locker, and um, I look over and I see a young man sitting in his area, and I'm, you know, hello, how you doing? We introduced ourselves, I'm Little John, his name was Matt, Matt Mayer. I don't know what it was about Matt, but from the very beginning that I met him, I just had an affinity for him. I liked him very much. I just, I just liked him. And because I liked him so much, I took it upon myself to basically be like, you know, like Matt's with me. Like nobody better even look at this kid wrong or they're gonna have to deal with me. I'm gonna say maybe it was about a week or two into like us talking that Matt you know, was saying he wanted to start a Bible study. So I'm like, yo, listen, whatever you want to do, man, like, I got your back. Although I'm not interested in it, I'll still sit there with you just to make sure you're good. Like a bouncer, per se. So I'll never forget it. Um, Matt had invited me to church one night. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a walk. I'll go with you. And we get to church, and there's this, like, little old man down there. He's, like, got tattoos and he's just you know he gets introduced to come up and speak he's not a pastor or anything he's just giving his testimony and I'm like look how happy this guy is like he's up there just bouncing around and he's you know giving his testimony and it, it like just sort of struck me as like cool I guess I was like wow look at this guy man if he could be that happy and have all this because of God like why can't I but I still was like a little reluctant you know I think a night or two had went by and there was a friend of mine on another unit. So I had him moved over to our unit so I could keep an eye on him. So he was smoking a cigarette, it was like late at night, Matt had just went to bed. He started asking, like, you believe all this stuff? And I said to him, I'll never forget, I go, you know, maybe I would believe, like, if God moved that ashtray across the table. But in my head, I'd probably make an excuse that the fan blew it or something because, you know, God doesn't do parlor tricks. You know, the next day comes, and we have this little Bible study, like every morning. But on this day, man, I don't know what happened, but like 18 people show up. We went from like 4 to 18 overnight. We're just getting ready to, like, Matt's getting ready to read the thing, and he gets called for legal mail. And he says, hey, John, would you mind just reading the, the thing for this morning? I'm like, yeah, I got you, man. Don't worry about it. I'll read it. Meanwhile, I'm still not interested. I'm just doing a favor for Matt while he runs downstairs. As soon as he comes back, I'll give him the book, and that'll be it. I start to read the Daily Bread and I start to, I don't know, man, I start to have like a weird feeling. I don't know how to explain that feeling, but like almost like, like choked up or something. And I'm like, hold on guys, you guys excuse me, I gotta go to the bathroom. I said, ah, it must have been the hot dogs at lunch or something, you know? I go to the bathroom and I start having this dialogue with myself. I'm like, yo, are you crazy? Are you gonna start crying in front of these lames, man? Like, what's wrong with you? I felt like this, like a wave of emotion come over me I never like really felt before. I sit down like, ah, oh, sorry about that, guys. All right. I go to read, 
another word and I can't even get the next word out where I just, I start to sob. And as I'm sobbing, I'm, I'm also trying to speak where I'm saying, you know, I just want what I saw that old man had last night and what Matt has. I want to have the ability to know that if I'm like falling backwards, like God is going to catch me. As soon as that happens, and I stopped crying, and I made that proclamation, and I was like, Matt, that was crazy. I felt like cleansed from the inside. That night, we went to bed. So I lay down, good night, Matt, see you tomorrow. I'm laying there for a few minutes. It may have been 10, 15 minutes, I don't know. All of a sudden, I was hit with like, yo, that was God moving my ashtray. I tapped Matt, and I'm like, dude, I'm like, that was God moving my ashtray. What happened today? Like, he knew moving the ashtray was just a parlor trick to me. I'd make an excuse for that. But touching my heart the way he did and, and what I felt, that was undeniable. Like, no matter whatever happens in my life from this point forward, I would never be able to deny that solidified fact that it felt like God had put his hand on my heart. You know, I was the Saul before the Paul. You know, where I would, you know, just look at people and be like, yo, that's weak, man. Like, you know, now all of a sudden you want to find God in prison. And the truth of the matter is, is that thank God, God found me in prison. Because of God in my life and my relationship with him, this conversation is going on in my home with people that I love and care for. And, you know, anything that I could do to help anyone else find the Lord, that would be my greatest pleasure and it would be my you know, for me, the optimal way to glorify God. So worth the time, as you can tell, just seeing how God is able to crack the hardest hearts. And of course, I wanted to show that as the opportunity to announce a, a new department here at the church. It is our complaint department, and uh, little John is heading up that department. So um, starting right after this service, feel free to send any complaints in. I'm, I'm just joking. Actually, I'm not joking at all. You'll never know. All right, so watch this. The point of Saul to Paul one who thought he was righteous, who discovers in Christ he was wretched. And it was Christ's righteousness for his wretchedness. The point of one who was a criminal, who would eventually come to Christ, the point is this, and the point of the introduction is this. Man's best cannot get him to God, like Saul thought. And man's worst cannot keep him from God, like John thought. What brings a man or a woman to God is God himself through Jesus Christ. God is the one who saves. God is the one who salvages. And God, by his grace, is the one who sends. Now, what I'm going to show you next are five slides. I don't intend to use them as a teaching tool in the moment. It's going to look like chaos. I do intend to show you the map of Paul's movements on the app at the sermon notes tab. When you click on it, you're going to see a cleaner version of what you're going to see on the screen. And you can use your fingers to zoom in and literally zoom in and see all the activity of the Apostle Paul from the moment God called him to the moment God would call him home. So the intro of his life looks like this, from Stephen being stoned to his conversion, you see that's the biggest silhouette, to eventually traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus, on Damascus Road, as we call it, he was demasked. From Damascus, he went to Arabia. He spent three years in Arabia, just as the disciples who walked with Jesus spent three years with him. I believe the Lord spent three years with the Apostle Paul on a honeymoon in Arabia, from Arabia back to Damascus, from Damascus to Jerusalem to meet who? The apostles. The apostles were like, I don't know about this guy. It was from Jerusalem where they commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go on his first missionary journey. Look at all the activity. Look at the map. Paul is on the move. Paul and Barnabas, as you know them, and a young man named John Mark. Who's John Mark? 
John Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark. John Mark was a little boy when his mother Mary was hosting the disciples in the upper room. So here's John Mark, here's Paul, here's Barnabas. They're on a missionary journey. He stops off in a location named Lystra. Who lives in Lystra? Timothy lives in Lystra. Timothy's mom and grandmom live in Lystra. Bible scholars believe Paul gives the gospel in Lystra and he converts Timothy's grandmom and mom and eventually Timothy himself. Paul's second missionary journey begins. It's Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, and they split over a dispute over John Mark. John Mark, Mark seemingly deserted Paul, so he felt. So Paul's like, I'm not going on this journey any further with John Mark. Barnabas and John Mark are related. Barnabas feels compelled to stay with John Mark. Paul goes his way with Silas, Paul and Silas. Barnabas and John Mark go that way. Guess who they pick up, Paul and Silas? Timothy. And this is where Timothy travels with Paul. Where do they go? Paul in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. Paul sends Timothy ahead of him to Macedonia. Paul's like, I got to go back to Jerusalem. The disciples say, you can't go back to Jerusalem. Paul, everywhere you've been so far, you've either started a riot or a revival. And they're waiting for you in Jerusalem. And they're hostile. You're not going to make it alive if you go to Jerusalem. Paul goes to Jerusalem. And then the outro of his life. After the third missionary journey, what's the outro of his life? He gets locked up. He requests and appeals to Caesar. He goes from one political station to the next, sharing the gospel on the way as a prisoner in chains. He eventually gets released from house arrest. Under house arrest, he writes the books, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon, he gets out. He sends Timothy to Ephesus, Pastor Ephesus. I got to keep moving. He writes this letter to Timothy in Ephesus. He writes his letter to Titus in Crete, and he gets locked back up again. And he writes the second letter as an inmate of the Roman state, the second letter to Timothy, and Nero beheads him. I stop and I say, all that activity, when the Lord got a hold of his life, nothing could stop him. How? What motivated this guy? One verse, found in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Paul, you know what's waiting for you? The Spirit has testified what's waiting for you in every city you go to are chains and trial, chains and trial. And yet he still went bound in the Spirit to those chains and those trials. And here's why. You ready for it? But none of these things move me. What am I waiting for? What, what is waiting for me? Trial? Okay. That doesn't move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You want to know what motivated this guy? What, what should motivate the Christian? How none of these things in life should move us? that we would finish our races well with joy because of the ministry God has entrusted to us. We receive it to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This should be our anthem. This should be this church's anthem. What was the anchor? One word as we close. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss it. He throws it in there. Our hope, hope. What did Pastor Gary teach on last Sunday? Hope, Psalm 42, hope for the downcast. Hope, no matter what you're going through, no matter what's happening outside of you, there's a hope, a hope that grounds you, a hope that transcends circumstances. Hope does not fix problems. Don't get it twisted. Having hope in Jesus does not fix all of our problems. Hope does not fix problems. Hope fills the heart with God's promises. So in the midst of those problems, the heart is full of God's promises, which is why you need to know the word of God. You got to have this word in your heart so that when trying times come, it's the hope of God in you, the hope of glory, which is Christ Jesus in you, the hope of heaven transcends and transforms and it's always enduring and it's always maturing. There's a hope that the church of Jesus Christ has. And this is what Paul was trying to say in his introduction 
in his salutation, my name is Paul. I am an apostle by God's grace alone. I didn't choose this. He chose me. I'm commanded and commissioned to fulfill this mission. And I will do just that. Regardless of what's waiting for me, there is a hope that is going to move me. Dear church, this is your charge. Let's pray. So Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray according to your will that your work would be done here in this place, in your people. Your kingdom would come here in Ocean City and beyond. Your kingdom would be done here. And as your people receive your word, I pray, Jesus, you'd motivate us and compel us into our callings to serve your body, to serve your cause, to keep moving regardless of what's happening around us, to strengthen husbands and, and, and wives and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. And as we send our students back to the school system, whether public or private, whether university or college, whether grade school, Lord, would you be with them? Would they be sent forth like Paul to be lights in a dark world, to turn those that are persuaded by the power of Satan unto the power of God, that their eyes would be open, they would be translated from darkness to light, and the gospel would make an impact in this church in your people and beyond. Thank you for choosing us. We choose you back as bond servants. Compel us now to sing. We are grateful, but we understand gratitude. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.